You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Tonight we're going to talk to a gentleman that started pinball licensing. Yes, he was the man that came up with the concept of licensing themes for pinball machines back in the 1970s. And the first game that had this official license was the 1975 Bally Wizard. Prior to this, Gottlieb had done a few close licenses, but never officially got a license. Like in the 1950s, they did a game called Guy's Dolls, which was obviously a takeoff on the play, the Broadway play, Guys and Dolls. And then they also had some games like 7-Up and Canada Dry, um, but they weren't officially licensed to the actual products by 7-Up and Canada Dry. So this gentleman was the first person to actually do the licensing and figure out how to market games to dramatically increase sales because these Bally licensed-themed pinballs sold four to five times the number of units compared to unlicensed products at the time. So licensing was really a marketing tool, and this gentleman is going to explain how he came up with the concept and what he did to get the increased sales and promotions to make pinball more mainstream. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. I'd like to welcome Tom Neiman to TopCast tonight. Again, he worked for Bally and started licensing in pinball machines, and we're going to give him a call right now. JCM Global, this is Victoria. Hi, I'm trying to get a hold of Tom Neiman. Thank you. Just a moment, please. Tom Neiman. Tom, it's Clay. Clay. So, uh, do you, this okay? This sounds fine to me. A, a lot of the pinball people may not recognize your name right off the bat. Um, Young. Black <laughs> <laughs> <My> guys died. <laughs> well, I, I was, but really, you were instrumental in in setting up. You know, one. You know, if not. Probably the first game that ever had an a quote official license um, for a pinball company, and that was with with Wizard, right in 1975. Correct. To my understanding, the research I did, I never found another licensed game, and uh, and I think that really uh, my decision in in working a little bit with Roger Sharp as he was doing research on the original book, um, he did find some glass. I think a game called Seven Up in France. But it didn't look like it was officially tied to the soft drink. Right, in Canada Dry, you mean through Gottlieb? Yeah, I think that that was another one that he found. But for some reason, it didn't look like someone had gone through the licensing procedures. So um, uh, most people that I speak to reference Wizard as at least the first fully licensed uh, game in the in the golden era of pinball. Well, let's back up. And how did you get involved with 
pinball and and what's your history with pinball? Where did it all start with you and how you got hooked up with Bally? I I graduated from the University of Michigan in um, 1972 in the fall, see in the uh, winter. So it was a December graduation. Started looking for a job in January of 72 and looked for in a lot of different places. I had a degree in uh, radio, television, and film from Michigan. And um, my good friend, uh, Bill O'Donnell, who I had gone to uh, grammar school and high school with, uh, and speaking to him at some point, said, look, if you're just looking for a job, something that generate revenue, why don't you go to work for one of the companies at Bally? And uh, I said, that would be great. I just need to get a check coming in. I was married at that point. And I took a job with Carousel Time. Carousel Time was Bally's very first acquisition in the operation end of the business. It was a large route operator of kitty rides and bulk vend machines in the Chicagoland area. Um, I took a job there. They stuck me in the uh, in the back room. I tried to. They they showed me a schematic and asked me to work on some of the games. Uh, some of the uh, kitty rides and stuff. Um, they, sh- they quickly discovered I had no technical ca- capability, and uh, rather than risk killing myself, um, they discovered I had a driver's license uh, for trucks. So I started driving the truck for them and delivering kitty rides to various uh, route sites in uh, Chicago. And uh, I started giving them feedback on the routes and saying which store managers liked the, the 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 rides and which didn't, who cut the cords and who didn't, and who kept them clean and who didn't, and moved moved things around accordingly. And they sort of saw this as someone who could analyze the route. And uh, I continued to do that until they pulled me off the truck and put me in the office, and that's all I did was analyze the route. And then... Um, Wait, wait, wait. When you said cut the cords, what do you mean the operators would cut the cords? Yeah, they'd cut the plug off the kitty ride because they didn't want... It was a pain in the ass to the manager of the store. He was a retail outlet. People came to him for refunds or whatever. He didn't like that, and so so he wouldn't be bothered. Uh, rather than just pull the plug out of the wall, they'd just cut the cord. <laughs> so when you went, there was nothing in the cash box or very little. You'd see the cord had been cut, obviously, by somebody... And once that happens too many times, you know you're in a location that really doesn't want you there. Right. So I would suggest the games, or, you know, uh, rides, uh, in some cases, games get pulled out and relocated to locations where the store managers love the idea. Now, why was Bally into operating? Why did Bally get into operating? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of odd that the manufacturer... The felt that there was a lot more money to be made on their operational side than there was just on making a, a device and selling it for a margin once. Hmm. They wanted to be in the flow of the revenue. And uh, they wanted to build an operation that had plenty of sites and then eventually where they could uh, migrate over their pinballs and uh, video games that were coming out of the pinball plant and the uh, Midway's uh, video products. Um, they went out at them at that point and bought Jules Millman's company, um, Aladdin's Castle. Right. The mall operation. 
Jules had been building game rooms in malls and, and was really sort of a leading-edge type operator. And they acquired his company. And then uh, it's I, I worked for them briefly when they, the mall operations came in and, and did some uh, mall management in some of the rooms. Um, but at some point I migrated over and, and left the operation end of it. They put me over into corporate uh, to turn into, to become uh, relative to sales. And I worked in an office with uh, Paul Calamari and Bob Harpling. Calamari being the, the old, the, the grandfather of pinballs for Bally. Hmm. And really learned the business at, uh, you know, sitting there listening to them on the phone, talking to the distributors, meeting people as they came into Bally. And my job was primarily to blow out all the uh, excess inventory. Uh, any of the overruns, um, they would give them to me, and I would figure out discount deals and pick up the phone and bang away with all the distributors in the U.S. How how common was uh, overruns in manufacturing? For Bally, fairly common at that point. It's, it, all the, amazing considering how small their runs were. Um, you know, they were the third, the number three uh, pinball manufacturer at that point. Right, you mean Gottlieb was one, Williams was two, and Bally was three. Clearly the number one player, and Williams number two. Hmm. I, I would have thought at this point that Bally was outselling Williams. No. I, if they had a 3,000-piece run, everyone jumped through the hoops. They were all excited. Huh. So as I was sitting there doing this and getting more and more immersed into the mentality of, of pinballs and arcade rooms, and having been not too far out of college and having gone through the, you know, the, the musical, the rock opera Tommy, um, it, it always, uh, I always wondered why someone hadn't done something. And I raised that question one day, and a senior guy named Herb Jones. Herb Jones seemed like he was about 150 years old when I walked through the door. He'd been there since day one at Bally, working with Ray Maloney. And he told me that they actually had letters from the who. And he, <laughs> they got some correspondence from the record label requesting permission to use the name Bally in a song. And if you remember, I thought I was the Bally Table King. Right. The letter comes in. Herb Jones, who at, you know, 150 has no idea who the who is, what a rock opera was. And fortunately, he didn't write them back and tell them not to do it. <laughs> I'm not sure he actually wrote them back and told them to do it. Um, but he showed me this correspondence, and it was from uh, actually the publishing company um, for the for the who's music. And so, based on seeing that letter, I said, well, why don't, why doesn't someone do something associated with it? And I read in Cashbox where they, uh, uh, Columbia Films had moved forward on the production of the movie, Tommy. And uh, once I saw that, I said, oh, my God, someone has got to do something. And I mentioned it to everybody in the, in the company, and they looked at me with these blank stares like, well, what would we do? <laughs> and, and what year was this? Uh, well, Tommy came out in 70... 
four. Right. And um, I just got on the phone. And and I, the greatest advice that didn't get in the way was Ross Shearer, who was my boss. And Ross was on his way out the door to go to Australia for three or four weeks. And when I told him my idea, he said, spend very little time and no money. <laughs> so fortunately, he left town, so he, he wasn't there to, to uh, limit me. Uh, I called just into the monolith of Columbia Films trying to find out who do I talk to. I had no idea. And weeks on the phone, between my selling Circus Circus and, you know, other <laughs> stiff games, I uh, I would just get callbacks or I'd pass on to this person, you know, dozens of calls. And I finally found the absolute greatest guy in the world, a guy named Barry Laurie, who was responsible for uh, uh, licensing and marketing and exposition. And... Uh, he was handling the, the movie Tommy. And I told him, I said, we're the, okay, I might have said the largest pinball manufacturer, but I think I just said uh, the oldest pinball manufacturer. And um, You mean you might have stretched the truth just a tad? I stretched it a little bit. And I said, we got this idea, we want to do the game based on the, on the movie and the album and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he just, he got it immediately, absolutely immediately. He said, absolutely, let's get together. Greatest idea, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, have you got some ideas what you want to do to promote it? And I, you know, I'm an idiot. So, oh, yeah, I, sure, I got tons of ideas. <laughs> and uh, so he said, great, meet me next Wednesday at such and such a hotel in New Orleans. I'm in a meeting there. We can do this deal. But wait, you were on a no budget. I'm on a no-budget. Hell, I didn't even know how to get a ticket to fly for Bally. So I had to find the lady who was in charge of making reservations and getting an airline ticket. And uh, and I got it. So I went down, found the hotel, went to found his meeting. Um, they were just getting started, introduced myself to Barry for 10 seconds when he said, Hey, just sit here. We'll get to you. And for the next hour or so, watched him explain to these were the distributors from around the country um, all the movies coming up for that year. And I, I was fascinated. I could have sat there all day and watched all the trailers and what they were doing for this movie and that movie. And eventually, they came to the the movie Tommy, which was going to be an absolute uh, cornerstone for their year. And uh, he. You know, the pictures get put up on the wall that are from the set. Um, material gets handed out, and Barry Laurie turns and says, and now I'd like to introduce the vice president of Bally Pinball, uh, who's going to come up and explain the promotion to you. You've been promoted, I see. Yeah, I thought my boss was in the room. <laughs> the vice president, is he here? <laughs> um, and on the way up, I walked as slow as I could so I could think of some promotion to do. Because we had not discussed, I'm telling you, I'd talked to Barry Laurie on the phone for 10 minutes and live for 15 seconds. And everything was, yeah, 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 well, we'll do something. And then he, he introduced me and he said, why don't you explain the promotion to these people? Oh, man. 
And, uh, you know, I just said, you know what, we've got a number of games set aside. Since <laughs> we had thought it out. A number of games set aside that we were willing to put into a promotional pool. And uh, we're going to pick the, and I kind of paused as I thought, how many markets would I do? I said, the top ten markets in the U.S. And uh, where you're going to do promotions, um, you know, we'll donate a, a machine into the promotion as the grand prize. Sure, they loved it. So you mean you were basically setting up a tournament is what you're trying to say. Well, uh, no, a giveaway. And I had no idea what how they'd give it away, whether it be radio call in. I, I, I didn't and I didn't care. Right. I just wanted the exposure. So um And you you're just flying the seat of your pants at this point, right? Absolutely the seat of my I don't even have the license at this point. <laughs> and so they ate it up and you know, New York and Chicago and Philly will do this and you know, we got sixteen radio stations and we you know, we kicked around what we'd have call ins do and then we'd have jockeys playing the machine in the lobby of the theater at the premiere and and I you know, I stood there and just said yes to everything. I had no idea. And so that meeting ended and Barry and I wandered off and uh we we in essence did the deal and the deal was I gave him ten machines, then eventually gave him probably another five or six to give away to executives at Columbia. I gave Barry one. I gave the oh the property manager one. You know the the guy the prop master who takes care of everything and a handful of people. And then of course eventually gave most of the stars uh, in the movie some uh, uh, that pinballs too. So. Now when you went back when your when your when your vice president got back your boss got back how did he react to all this? <laughs> I had done I'd signed and shook hands with Barry. This was it. Flew back to Chicago and went, holy shit, what if Valley doesn't want to do it? And Because um, they had never done it. Now, under my arm, I had photos from the set. I had a script. I had all the promotional material. I had everything. And so I came back, and I would say it was a, probably a tougher sell at Valley than it was at Columbia Films, once I found the right guy. Huh. And so they stood back and kind of scratched their head, and they said, so what are we going to call it? <laughs> and that's when uh, I, I don't think Barry had the right to license the name Tommy, because that was owned by the music label, but he had the right to all the images from the movie. So that's how we conceded and came up with the title Wizard, Pinball Wizard. Now, so your total licensing cost was maybe 20 or 25 machines, would you say? Oh, plus my travel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was it, just with just units. Right. So is in, in retrospect, I mean, that's like nearly free, right? Dirt cheap. Right. Dirt cheap. And they were okay with it, and, and Bally was soon to be okay with it. Yeah. Then they said, well, what, you know, they, no, it had never been done. So everyone goes, well, what play field? And I said, well, let's go to work on it. Where, where do I go to get a play field? They sent me downstairs and Norm Clark uh, into his lab. And we talked about features and games. And uh, the flip flags were just coming over from the uh, private developer who sold that feature to Bally. Um, a little company in Chicago who made features for the games for us. 
and he came up with the flip flag concept. It just closed the deal and sold the flip flags. So Norm was looking for a game to put some flip flags on. And, uh, and so we stuck that on the play field. And I, you know, I, one whiteboard to me looked like another whiteboard. Talked to Norm. I said, what's the best? The critical point was, here's the date. It's got to be ready. Right. This is the movie release. So I need, you know, pre-production units by this. We went backwards. So based on that, he said, well, this whiteboard would be the most developed and ready to go, blah, blah, blah. But now you need artwork. So I had to go see Dave Christensen in the art department uh, and uh, do the glass. Now, when did you have to get the glass approved? I mean, did you did you know that you were going to have Anne Margaret and Roger Daltrey on the glass? No, I gave everything to Dave, and he kind of submersed himself into the the rock opera Tommy and the album. And I told him I gave him all the the information I had from the meeting in New Orleans, promotional information, the script, and everything else. And I said, you got to pull out of this the imagery that would work for the game. And uh, if you know Dave Christensen, he's he's a weird dude. He went in the back room, soaked it all up, came back out, and it is amazing how he hit, because he had a very limited visuals given to him. I had, I don't know, maybe a dozen color photos from the set. Hmm. And you remember, this the, the producer on this was the crazy Englishman who's dead now. Um, but a wild man. And God knows how he was going to convert the imagery of that music to a visual. Um, and uh, Dave, remember that he got snakes into it. He got so many of the little imagery issues that translated into the film. And he did, the, he did all that without ever seeing the film. Right. He literally worked from about a dozen... Uh, Photos taken from the set. So did did Daltrey or Margaret have to give any sort of consent on their images? Uh, no, Columbia Films had their images as long as they were in character. And did they did they have any? I mean, when you showed them the artwork, did Columbia say anything about it or say, "Yeah, no, that's good. They'll go with it." I think there were some slight modifications. Um, I, I think <laughs> I think David had. Sexed up Anne Margaret, maybe just a little bit over the edge. <laughs> we and had to dial it back just a knob or two. But that uh, I, I was going to say, he drew a pretty good Anne Margaret. I mean, she looks pretty hot on that glass. Yeah, no, he did. He did. Well, Dave was. Yeah, that, that was, was Dave. Forte. Yeah, that was that was Dave's thing. Yep, it sure was. Yeah. And just at that point, Paul Ferris was coming into the picture, is taking over the art department. Right. Right. Now, did you have a choice of artists, or was Dave the artist? Um, I, I truly think, as I recall for this one, Dave was the artist. He was available, and, you know, his his imagery was the most vivid. Right. And I, I don't think I chose it. I probably didn't know enough. to. Ch- I would certainly choose him today, but um, I probably didn't know enough, and I was probably just given Dave. So now the the game goes into production. You sell ten thousand units, which is like an incredible run. What did Bally say? They were. It was limited because they never went out and bought that many pieces in their lives. We we did an initial run, ran out of everything. It continued selling, so they went back and ordered you know more cabinets, more whiteboards, more everything. Um, 
and if we had had plenty of components, I think we could have sold considerably more than we did. But at some point, it, it was just such a great run. It was through, and they had never run that long on a production line. So the profits go up. Certainly after your first so many thousand, your margins increase on the units. So they ended up making just a, a ton of money on the unit. And, and it was a great promotional fund from my standpoint. You know, I went around to the various cities for the, uh, for the premieres. I was in New York for the, the world premiere and the big party that was down in the subway station. Mm-hmm. Um, that Columbia threw and got to hang out with I was at the press conference with all the stars from the movie and ran around and got a pinball wizard t-shirt shirt signed by everybody and photographs taken and things like that hmm. um, so this was a pretty wild ride for a 20 something executive yeah I was about 26 or something <laughs> and truly flying by the seat of my pants. And what I got to be honest with you, I go to the world premiere. I see it. I see it twice. I think there was a uh, early evening version, and then the big gala one was that night. I see the early version, and I think, oh my God, what have we put? What have I gotten this company into? I mean, the movie was so bizarre. Yeah, the movie was a little strange. And, uh, you know, the, the snakes crawling through the skull and the, the piece or the, the, the beans and Nan Margaret floating. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I, I might have just fired myself. <laughs> um, but just hung in there and, and it came out and, uh, you know, as they say, the rest is history. It was wildly successful. We, saw, we created a pull-through market rather than the traditional push-through market that, that Valley had been built, the industry was really built on. You know, the manufacturers made a game, pushed it down to the distributors, and the distributors pushed it down to the operators. This product, because of the publicity, uh, reversed it and pulled it through. The kids, the players, wanted it. They went to the locations and said, where's the, the Tommy machine? Where's the pinball wizard? The locations called the distributors. The distributors called Valley and said, I don't know what it is, but I got to have three truckloads of the pinball game. Huh. Wow. So that created quite a stir, and and it took a while to get completely out of the system, but I honestly, once it did, I sat back down at my desk, started selling pinballs, and thought that was it. Ross Shear called me in his office, and we kind of reviewed everything that went on, and, and you know, obviously they were, they were very happy with me, and I think they actually gave me a little bonus. Um, and he turned to me and he said, well, what's your next game? And I kind of blinked and looked at him, and, and I had no cop. What do you mean? And he <laughs> said, well, what are you going to do next? And I said, oh, my God, he thinks this is a a regular gig. Yeah, he thinks this is a reoccurring thing. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, you know, i gotta sell, I got to sell this stuff. And he goes, screw that. You don't have to sell anything. Just do another game like that. So uh, well, I kind of sat back down at my desk and scratched my head. I was a little worried and concerned and then thought, well, Jesus, if anybody came out of that movie as uh, as uh, bigger than life, it was Elton. And I had met Elton and I had met his management and the people who kind of kept him on a leash and 
I had all their cards, and I called them up, and I said, you know, boy, that was great. And I think uh, we had sent Elton the, uh, one of the games. And I was, you know, following up to make sure everybody got it and was happy, blah, blah, blah. Oh, by the way, what do you think if we do a an Elton game? And, uh, God, what was her name? Young girl who kind of uh, controlled the whole situation for the management company. And she said, I love it. Fly out and talk to me about it. So I jumped on another plane, went to the West Coast, and, and sat down. And, and, and here's the amazing thing. I don't believe Elton had the rights to his image from the movie. Really? And I didn't do this deal with Columbia. I did it with Elton John. Now, maybe he's so big, and he was such a big entertainer at that point, Columbia Films wouldn't dare um, Walk challenge on him, him yeah. on that. Yeah. But I thought about that later. You know, the, the imagery in the glass is all the movie. Right. We called it Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy because that was the next big, the big double album that came out. And that's what his record label wanted to promote, that name. Now, the two have nothing to do with each other. So were you talking to the people that... Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy was an attempt at an animated cartoon that the hero was Elton John. So were you talking to Columbia, or were you talking to his record label on the licensing? Talking to his management and the record label, not Columbia Films. Okay. But when they said from a visual standpoint, I said, well, God, Elton in those boots. I mean, how do you not do that? Right. So we just you know, took the imagery from the movie. And again, Dave Christensen did the art. And, um, you know, I think he hit it again. Now, everyone knows about there's two glasses. Right. The original one that we did for the prototypes. Um, at some point, somebody in management saw some of the little fine details going on in the crowd. Uh, and we all had to, they had to cover things up with stars that they thought was a little bit uh, risque. Yeah, I don't know if the stars really made things better or worse, though. <laughs> But the, the, the production run is done with the stars. Right, right. And then you cranked out 16,000 of, you know, the Captain Fantastics. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, that, was, that was just a ton of fun, because that was 1975. Elton was touring, you know, tied to the Centennial. And we did promotions. Again, I just followed the same kind of promotional format. Again, it was all games. It was not, there was no cash. It was all games. It was, was the fee. Right. Now, a lot of people at the record label got games, and a lot of people, and all Elton's friends got games, and Elton's mom got a game, <laughs> and uh, uh, we delivered them everywhere. And so, did, so did the game number go up significantly? Pardon me? Did, did the game number that you gave away go up significantly? Uh, no. I don't think we went over two dozen. Interesting. I think the, the record promotional ones where Elton, because he went around all the major venues that summer or that year. I mean, I remember the Chicago one, uh, that concert, at the uh, Madison Square Garden concert. And I'd go to these things and I'd be backstage hanging out uh, with Elton, you know, in the, in the room in the back with the band and everybody and all the carrying on. And uh, I, ha I had a little seat on the side of the stage, or I would go to the audience, because 
quite honestly, the show's much better from the audience than it is from the stage. Right. Um, and so I, I, now he'd say, just go to whatever you need to go to. And I'd go to Philadelphia, I'd go to New York, I'd go to Chicago. And tied into the ra- record, the record label and the radio stations ended up giving away, you know, uh, Captain Fantastics. Hmm. Wow. So, you know, the, the, the between Wizard and Captain Fantastic, you know, they did, they obviously did some other games. Like they did, uh, in Flip Flop and Bow and Arrow and Hocus Pocus. There, I think. Or... Yeah, well, no, that, that came a little after, but the, in Blackjack and Old Chicago. But none of those sold anywhere near the units. The, you know, I mean, if you got, Five or six thousand units out of any of those games. It went back to the old three to five thousand unit run. Right, exactly. So, w- were they like knocking on your door every week? Well, I mean, you know, I figured you, you couldn't do every game like this, and it took literally to put it together from the standpoint of find a deal, negotiate a deal, get everybody in, design a playing field, design a glass, get an approval on the glass. Do a promotional of you know all that tied in. Jesus, it took six to nine months. Huh. Now, how did you? It was exhausting, but it, you know it took that much time. I'm not sure you could do more than one every nine to twelve months. Now, what about um, you know they start they did these Captain Fantastic home games that sold through Sears. How did that? Time we started to, to take a shot at uh, the home unit. And uh, we did, um, I believe we did Evil Knievel, which, you know, was one of our first electronic games. Uh, and I think we did uh, Captain Fantastic, and that's when I brought in um, the guy from England who did the album cover for Captain Fantastic. Oh, man, great guy, great, the illustrator from England, and uh, did the album cover for it. And I brought him in, and, and he stayed for about three weeks, worked with Paul Ferris, very closely, and they did that backlash for the home game. Didn't sell. I don't think those games were huge numbers. No, but it was something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a new market for Bally. Right. Right. Now, so what was the next project up? I mean, after, the, you know, they must have been patting you on the back after selling 16,000 years. like that. They, it was, then I was in real trouble. What the hell am I going to do now? And then I just sat down and made a list of every fantasy person I ever wanted to meet or things I wanted to do. That's how we came up with Playboy. And uh, Evil Knievel was big at that time. Uh, I had three E's, Elton, Evil, and Elvis. And I got to do two of the three. The Elvis thing fell apart. I negotiated with uh, Colonel Parker, um, who managed Elvis. And uh, I talked to him in Vegas. And unlike everyone else who thought games were a, a good medium, uh, the colonel that couldn't give a shit about the games, he wanted cash. Oh. And lots of it. Like how much? Like lots. Big percentage of, of every game sales. And I said, I said no. You know, I probably should have done it. Probably would still have been worth it. We would have sold a ton, but, uh, I just had never done big cash deals. How much now, how, in the negotiations for these things, did Bally give you a lot of leeway, or was it like, you know, they were just expecting to give out a, a lot of units of, of, you know, give out a two dozen games or something? I don't ever remember them sitting and telling me what 
limits or what to do and what not to do. They just said, you know, go get some good deals at a good price. And I was the one who was probably the cheapskate because I had started that way. And, you know, uh, it kind of became in vogue at that time to have your own pinball. I mean, that's what led to things like Six Million Dollar Man and uh, the Rolling Stones, um, all those Dolly Parton. Uh, we, you know, we just, I just kept making a list of, of people who I thought would be cool to meet and what, some relationship to, to music and rock and roll and young kids and stuff like that. And that's where, you know, stuff like Playboy came right out of that. Who, what a fantasy. You know, teenage kid doesn't buy Playboy, but he can now play it. Yeah, so you had, in 75, you had Wizard. In 76, you had Captain Fantastic. In 77, these were all like a year apart, you had Evil Knievel. Now, how hard was uh, working with Evil Knievel? Uh, not bad at all. Once I got to the right people, um, you know, everybody's got so many people around them. The outer shell will tell you, no, no way, no way. you got to get as close to the person as possible. And on Evil, I just, he had been in Chicago um, he did a jump at the amphitheater, and I, I met his manager, who once I explained it to him, he took it to Evil, and then Evil kind of got involved and said, what would you do? And I explained it. Um, so we went ahead, and I you know, did the artwork, and I took it down, got it approved. I actually ended up spending a weekend with uh, Bobby, which was Robert Craig Knievel is his name. Huh. And uh, a real simple guy, tin miner from from uh, was it Montana or something? And uh, uh, you know he just had a huge ego, and if you could stroke his ego, he was happy to do anything you wanted. And I remember <laughs> I met him down at the Jockey Club in Miami, uh, where he kept a huge, but at least a 150 foot boat or something. And they were shoot, going to shoot some music video or some goddamn thing. And I went down there and spent the weekend on the boat and um, got the artwork approved, took some photos, and we were off and running. Yeah, and then you sold. Again, there was this lapse where you fell back into this, you know, four, five, six, seven thousand unit thing, and then you go at Evil Knievel and you sell fourteen thousand units. So you're 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 batting a thousand here. Yeah, well, it, nobody was doing anything like it. I was just trying to mimic the music industry and the celebrity industry. And I figured if you could do something that the players wanted where they went and asked for it, it was easy. Now, but it, what you were doing sold more games in one run than they sold in three or four or even five different games. And, I mean, were they rewarding you well for this? I mean, this is unbelievable what you're doing. Well, no, that was, that's the downside of being as young and naive as I was. I thought this was my job. <laughs> you mean it really wasn't? Uh, well, it was, but, you know, it, it, let me put it this way. If today I was doing it, my deal would be participation, and I'd be taking a piece of the upside. Right. Of which I'm sure all the senior executives at Bally ended up doing. Um, <laughs> but I never considered asking for that because, well, one, hell, it was such a great job, I would have paid to have it. <laughs> okay, now, what's the deal with 8-Ball? 
eight ball came out and it's got the image of Fonzie on it, but it's not licensed. What happened there? Gee, do you think that looks like Fonzie? <laughs> Maybe just a little. I believe he 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 was that show came out of Columbia Films, didn't it? It was the distributed the T V show. And I bumped into the concept and I thought it fit well. We kind of went down that path, and then we said we couldn't get a license or something happened. We couldn't pull the trigger on the license. So we modified it, and all the other people in the back class are members of the art department. If you if you look at the glass, various artists for ballet are actually part of that back class. Yeah, but the the girl, the main girl, isn't that the pinky girl or whatever? Well, it was pink, but it was actually Margaret. Um, what was her name? Margaret something who was in the art department. And Margaret was pretty well endowed. Uh, well, that those enhancements may have been. <laughs> those were non non surgical art department um, liberties. May have been taken there, but uh, <laughs> but it it, it, uh, it that that game came out and, and ended up being huge. Um, I think that was truly on the merit of the game. That was a fabulous playfield design. Right. Right. Now, what about the power play with Bobby Orr? Was that that was your doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I met Bobby out in Boston, um, and then he, he he finished his career at Boston, and then signed with the Chicago Blackhawks. He had just gotten to town. I met him out by O'Hare, and had a drink with he and. Uh, his manager, and uh, hit him with the concept. He liked it. Uh, we quickly did a deal. Um, it's really almost a shame because Bobby Orr is the essence of the Boston Bruins. Right. And but we did the deal in his the autumn of his career when he was a Blackhawk, of which he played only a handful of games due to the injuries. But I really truly befriended Bobby and our two families. Um, spent a lot of time together, and I spent some summers with him out in Cape Cod. And uh, truly, one of the nicest guys I've ever met and spent time with. And w- you know, for the superstar that he is, um, you would never know it. Uh, we we would, I used to go to the Cape in the summer with my family, and then when we come came off the Cape, we'd spend that weekend at Bobby's house in Boston, and. Uh, it was just a lot of fun. He and his wife and his his uh, two boys uh, and all our kids and uh, had, had a very good relationship. All right, we're going to take a break from our talk with Tom Neiman of Bally Licensing, and we'll be right back after this message. Deep in the forests of eastern Canada, you will find something, well, groundbreaking and something that's very, very pinball, but something that's really, really small. Presenting classic playfield reproductions. Two guys in their basements. We've got the passion, we've got the gear, and we've got the quality. Doing our very best to remake classic and more modern pinball replacement parts. Classic playfield reproductions. Playfields. Back glasses. Plastic sets. 
on the web at classicplayfields.com. This portion of TopCast is brought to you by Pin Game Journal, covering the world of pinball. Visit them online at www.pingamejournal.com. All right, we're back with Tom Neiman of Bally Licensing. I wanted to hit the $6 million man. Um, how did now, what, what made you decide to go the TV route now of, of that show? Well, if you remember, well, there was a, a, I had in my basement, uh, part of my collection, I had a six-player pinball that Bally did, and they only made the um, prototypes. They never made the unit. Monster-sized back glass, uh, backboard. You can imagine it was all a mechanical game. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how I scored that out of Bally at some point. There was only like two or three of them ever built. And it was a six-player game. And I just, you know, uh, thought the concept would fit. I wanted to do a six-player version of it with $6 million men. Oh, okay. okay. And we couldn't do the six-player version, but we did the $6 million men. Now, how how hard was it to work with Lee Majors? Very remote control. Never met him, never did a thing. Contacted the people. They said, we'll do the deal. Um, I don't remember ever going out there. It was all done kind of remote control. I got all the approvals. I submitted artwork for approval. There was no connection at all. Hmm. Hmm. And was this, again, payment was in games? I think by then we might have been doing small amounts of money, you know, $25,000, and if it goes over this, we'll you know put more in. The, the numbers were never big at all, huh. never near what they should have been. But when those remote control games came in where we didn't, they didn't contribute anything. Nobody promoted it. Nobody did. You know, we had six ideas of promotions, and I couldn't get them to do anything. So um, there, there were a handful of games like that that were not very interactive with the people behind the, the license. Now, what about Playboy? Playboy was the next one up. How, you know, I assume that you did actually work with Hugh Hefner on that one. Yeah, sure. It was the day I had... I had Pitched it at the at the offices, Playboy's offices in Chicago, to Christie Hefner, and the guy who was running the Playboy clubs. I forget his name, but they were actually dating at the time. And I pitched it to the two of them because I had read, I had that article from Playboy where he did on Fireball. Right. How Hefner said it was the greatest pinball ever made, and blah blah blah. And uh, I said clearly, Christie, your dad loves the idea of pinball, and. Uh, he has a true appreciation for it. You can, you know, you read this article and you, you can tell this guy, uh, really was nostalgic over it. And, uh, I said, you know, what a great concept for Playboy, blah, blah, blah. And it just, we finished the conversation and a day or two later, my phone rings <laughs> and the switchboard gives it and there's a deep voice that says, Tom Neiman, this is Hugh Hefner. I understand you want to do a game. And, uh, I said, well, Bob, I was, Awestruck. Talked to him for about 45 minutes. Huh. Talked about uh, growing up with Playboy, what Playboy meant to people, how the idea of playing pinball had, you know, he described this whole sexual uh, overtones to pinball and, uh, you know, standing between the legs of the machine and and went on and on. So. And was he, um, I, I mean, was he really a pinball player? Oh, God, yes. Oh. Yeah, they'd hold tournaments all the time down at the house. They had a a, a, a 
like a recreation cottage on the grounds uh, in L.A. at Charing Cross. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a number of games in there, and they had scores posted everywhere. And I, I was there for tournaments where James Kahn and Jimmy Brown, the football player, and Lance Renzel, the wide receiver for the Chargers, um, uh, Bill Cosby, you know, those kind of people went there and they would go, they'd go out there and play pinball for hours at a time. Huh. And, and now to Hugh, how did you pay Hugh again with games? Um, we did the deal with games and he agreed. Uh, then, uh, the, the president of the pinball, the, of the Playboy clubs came back and he said, oh no, wait a second, this is, and I said, well geez, Mr. Hefner thought it was wonderful. So I think I threw a couple bucks onto it. But it was not big. I don't think the whole thing cost us more than fifty thousand dollars. And how did was Bally reacting to this kind of this escalation in the pricing of the licensing? They didn't have a problem. Well, yeah, you sold eight. You know, don't give it away. Right. And I and they kind of knew that was my attitude. It was. I thought it was as much a prestigious thing for the subject as it was for us. And I always pitched it that way. I said, can you imagine? I'm going to put out on, you know, around the country, 15,000 glowing, blinking, noise-making things, you know, reinforcing whether it was Playboy or, you know, whatever the subject matter was. You know, these are lit billboards that work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So... Your your sales approach, do, you know, did you ever have anybody turn you down? Uh, Elvis, well, Elvis, we walked away right. from. I mean, he didn't turn us down. He just gave me a number that I said can't be done at that number. What what kind of number were they talking then? Well, good, I'm not either. You know, what kind of number were they talking back then? Oh, he was big. He, he was a couple hundred thousand up front. He wanted, I don't know, 15, 20% on, on every unit sold. And Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and you know what? It might actually have worked, but I, in my mind, I couldn't even fathom it. Because I can get this person, this person, and this person for next to nothing. Why would I pay that? Right. Now, in retrospect, we look back and think of Elvis, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I turned down some licenses that were pretty stupid. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> E.T.? Oh, you had E.T.? Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, we I get called, and, and Paul Ferris and I would go do tours of the studios in, in, on the West Coast. They'd bring us in and show us three or four licenses and say, oh, this movie's going to be this and that and that. And uh, uh, I remember the E.T. thing, and I thought, oh, there's one stupid-ass movie. <laughs> and uh, so. Yeah, Gottlieb stole that one. Yeah. yeah so I... <laughs> You know, my track record isn't perfect. I walked away from what should have been some very good deals. Well, what what were some other ones that you turned down that you were sorry on? Well, uh, the, um, you know, E.T. Was, was certainly a big one. You know, the Star Wars, I never chased it. I was pitched it by some people. And I, I guess my, my problem is I just wasn't a sci-fi fan. Hmm. Um, and I don't know if I could have got it, but it, I just... It, the discussion came up. I looked at it. I, we talked about it. I had no idea 
what Star Wars is all about. And I said, you know what, there's other ways to go. Let's stick with rock and roll and stuff like that. Now, did you ever turn one down that turned out to be, that it was good you turned it down? Oh, you know what, I can't give you one off the top of my head. I would hope that there was, yeah, we, we saw some stupid stuff. That Well, I'll tell you one I turned down. I'm actually very sorry I did because it, it impacted a relationship. And Bobby Orb came back to me on uh, Moosehead Beer. He got involved with the brewery. And as I look back on it, I think he said to them, oh, I can guarantee I can get this done. And he came to me and he showed me everything. Moosehead was just getting launched. It had very limited distribution. I couldn't find a bar in Chicago that carried it. And he said, oh, it's just a great, it's green and it's got the moose. And and I said, uh, you know what, I'm not sure this has got any legs. I said, how could I, you know, invest time and effort into something that's so unknown? And uh, he pushed me and and. I don't know. I should have said yes. I said no. Hmm. I didn't do it. And the relationship with Bobby shifted at that point. We saw each other a couple times after that. I've run into him at certain events. But uh, uh, it altered the relationship, and I'm sorry I, I uh, said no to that. Wow. Now, I'm trying to look out after the company, and I should have thought more about the relationships. Now, what about Star Trek? You know, you you didn't get Star Wars, but you got Star Trek. I got Star... Well, and that was a known entity. I mean, Star Trek was... Obviously, the series was huge. Uh, I think it was... Was that one based on the very first movie, maybe? Yeah, it was based on the on the original show, not on any of the movies which were coming out in the 70s. And, and again, i got to tell you, I'm not a sci-fi fan, so I wasn't a big Star Trek fan. I just knew that it was very, very, very popular. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I did that deal. Did you have to deal with? You know, oddly enough, was part of a settlement. Huh? I'm not sure I should be telling all these secrets, but um, if you remember the pinball Space Invader, you mean the game Space Invader? No, yeah. no the pinball Space Invader. Right, right. Yeah. Where Paul Ferris did the reflective glass. Yeah, yeah, the three-dimensional marquee glass. Right. Yeah. And Paul did that artwork and, in theory, was inspired by every monster-type situation that he had ever experienced. And in his mind to this day, he will argue that there is about six different movie creatures in that character. Uh, and Columbia Films argued that that was... Yeah, that was Predators. Alien. Yeah, was it... Oh, Alien or Predators? Alien. Alien. I'm right. sorry, Alien. Right. And, um, you know, we went ahead and did it. We we had the rights to the name Space Invader from the video game. So we said, God, we got to exploit that somehow. And so he created, in his mind, his ultimate alien. We, we tried to avoid that word because of the movie. Right. And we got uh, challenged. Now, was that Columbia Films or was that someone else? But it, the, the studio behind Alien came after us, and, and throughout letters, right? And my attitude was screw Let's go to court. You know, I can show you that it's the creature from the Black Lagoon, and it's this and it's that. 
it's a compilation. Although the, the head certainly had some yeah. resemblance to uh, the alien. So, so the settlement, you know, that was part of the settlement. Yeah. And were they happy with that? Yeah, they said, uh, in trying to get something for what we were going to have to pay out, I said, well, why don't you include another license, and we'll pay X for the license, and uh, you can take that as part of the settlement on this deal. Because they didn't, we didn't go to court. We didn't. They didn't prove it. It was just a matter of lawyers, you know, rattling their swords. Right. And I said, you know, let's not. I said, here's a here's a potential. We'll pay you X, and then we'll take another license, and we'll pay X on that license. And in cumulative, you've been compensated enough. You ought to be happy. And let's just shake hands and forget it. And uh, that's where Star Trek came from. Now, what about Kiss? How how was that? Ah, great game, it's a lot of fun. Um, just again, another rock and roll fantasy deal. And and you you hack your way through the jungle. You can find the guy who's closest to the deal. And um, boy, what, Lee, what's his last name? Lee, young guy, frizzy hair. Um, and he was uh, with the management. Got to him, and uh, we did a deal, and. Um, tied it to the, I think it was the the platinum album, double album, right. is where we did the promotion inside the album, and uh, that created a huge pull through. I mean, the Kiss fans, as you know, are yeah, they're they, fanatical. Yeah, and we did a thing of uh, have your picture taken in your Kiss outfit next to a Kiss pinball machine, <laughs> send it in, and the most creative would win a a machine. And that was stuck inside the platinum album when it went out. And uh, boy, did we get some bizarre photographs. <laughs> um, some obscene, some bizarre. But what they did then is that forced them to run around to every arcade and say, "Have you got a Kiss machine?" Right. And the guy standing there looking like Gene Simmons. <laughs> and so the operator goes, "Oh my God, I don't know what a Kiss machine is, but I have to have six." <laughs> So they would call the distributor, and the distributor called us, and it built up a huge, huge pre-order on the game. So, so you were basically turning into quite the marketing genius at this point. Believe me, not because of a high level of intelligence. It was just whatever felt like the right thing to do was what I did. And now, did you ever have to talk to any of the people in the band? Yeah, oh sure, there's that great photograph. Um, Paul Ferris and I flew out to L.A., when they were making, I think it was a TV movie on the group Kiss, and they did a concert at uh, what's the amusement park, the big one out there. And um, uh, Paul Ferris, myself, and this Lee get in a limo to go out to the concert, and we're going to meet with the group at some point in the breaking of the filming and review the artwork. And so we go out there, and it's L.A., but for some reason the night it's really cold, so they dig into Kiss memorabilia, Kiss paraphernalia, and find jackets for us and all that stuff. So we pull into this this mob scene of people in the limo with the Kiss jackets on, and I don't know who they thought we were, but uh, felt a little bit like a rock star. And we <laughs> hung out backstage and watched the concert, and then they finally broke for a while in the filming. And uh, Lee brought them back, and we actually laid the artwork out on the hood of a car. And the group, now in full 
Kiss regalia, because they're in the middle of a show, is standing there looking at the artwork, and we're getting their final approval. And, you know, Gene Simmons wants uh, bigger pecs and, and huge biceps, and, you know, they all, <laughs> it was a bit of a fantasy. They weren't in person nearly that big. But, um, so, we, you know, slight modifications, and they signed off and approved the artwork. So. But that's the game that has the two, again, two sets of glass. Right. It has the original Kiss glass, and then we shipped the first one into Germany, and the German distributor went absolutely nuts when he saw the SS in KISS and said, there's laws, you can't ship this game in here like this. And Germany was such a huge market. Um, we had to modify the glass to our set of rounded S's. Uh, right. Right. And uh, they got their own glass. Now, um, another license you did was, uh, and you sold 17,000 Kisses, which, again, you know, another pat on the back. That was big sale. Well, that's that double album, you know, promotion. Yeah. To run out and get your picture taken. Yeah. Now we, you know, of the 100,000 Kiss Army around the world, they're our salespeople. They're in every arcade saying, have you got the Kiss machine? <laughs> and and operators who had it thought they, they've never had a kid come in in a costume and ask for a game thought, oh, my God, I only have one, I need five, or I don't have it yet, I better get it. Now, what about Harlem Globetrotters? Now, why that theme? Um, I, I was looking for a global theme. You know, some of the stuff we did was pretty U.S.-centric, mm -hmm. and France and Germany were huge markets for us. And they always said, you know, don't, don't forget us. So I'm thinking, eh, global, global, what can't do global? There's an odd story. My father played for the Harlem Globetrotters. Really? My father did a tour as the opposing team. He played basketball at Southern Cal, uh, played for the Studebakers during the war. I guess the, the manufacturers, it was a, like a semblance of pro basketball. And on his way out, did a stint with... Um, Abe Saperstein and the Harlem Globetrotters, and every night he wore a different uniform, and he was the generals or the all-stars or, you know, whoever they were making fun of that night. Right. And so he did this stint. So the Globetrotters have always been kind of a neat target for me. I've always loved, used to go to them as very young. My dad would take me down to see him in the Chicago Stadium um, and see the original Globetrotters. So at some point I said, God, you know, everybody... These guys go around the world. Everybody recognizes them. So I went after that license, and I, of course, got it and did that game. It did backfire to some degree, oddly enough, because I thought that once they started to try and put it in the bars in the South and things like that, there was a lot of racial pushback on that game. Really? Yeah, I, and I couldn't believe it. I said, oh, my God, this is, this, I think, the 70s. Why are you... And Almost the, the 80s. Said, no, there's no way I can put that out in, in bars. Hmm. But you still sold 14,000 of them. Yeah, well, I think if you look, if, if, if you have some sort of breakdown, you'll see that on a global basis, the French and the German markets, huge sales. Were they really, was the French and German market happy that you picked that theme? Uh, they, they, you know, I pitched it to them that I was responding to their comments and that that these guys have, although they're Americans and they're dressed in red, white, and blue, 
they have a very strong global connection to the world. They play, you know, literally in, in every city in the world, and uh, I don't know. They bought it. Yeah. Oh, I meant to ask you, on KISS, what was uh, what was the payment schedule for KISS? Did they want money or just games? No, they're, they're, well, there was a lot. There were games involved. Certainly the games went through the record label. Then the, the group all got their machines, and then their friends got the machines. But there was some cash in that deal, too. But, again, not a rich deal. And, and what about the Harlem guys? They, because that was owned at that point, the Harlem Globetrotters, I believe, were owned by um, Madison Square Garden. So it was a corporation. Met the guy who owned it. I was actually trying to find some uh, memorabilia from when my father played. But most of that was lost in the years. Um, and, and did a small cash deal. Not a big deal. Now, why Dolly Parton for a theme? Um, well, wait a sec. When you think of, you know, shit kicker bars, she, twangy Dolly Parton, it, the country western Dolly Parton was what I wanted to do. We did this deal with her management, um, and then they told us how she's going to go Vegas. She's right. She's a classy, dressy, and that's the conflict. If you look at the game, we did the whole game country western. I showed them the artwork in the back glass, and they said, oh, no, 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 no. Dolly is Vegas. I said, no, really? And they go, oh, she's gowns and, uh, uh, you know, lights, and, and she's everything in Vegas. And I said, oh, my God. So if you look at the glass, it's very Vegas. If you look at the play field, it's very country western. I didn't want to do it over. So we did the glass over the artwork but we didn't do the play field over. Why, did you have to get approval on the glass, but you didn't get approval on the play field? No, they, I, I convinced them that we, that we had to show all of Dolly Parton, mm. no pun intended, um, that we had to show both sides of her, and that you know her deep fan base was still country western, so let's keep that look. I think it's actually on the cabinet and the, and the, the whiteboard. And then... Uh, the back glasses has this kind of glamorous on stage in a gown type deal, and ended up having to <laughs> sit with her. We were at the Beverly Beverly Wilshire, and I go back into some. They have like um, a suite in the back, and I'm back in her suite, and she's looking at it. She's the tiniest thing. She's not five feet tall. Oh really? Oh my God! I I was stunned. I mean, I think everyone we all stop after we check out her chest, but she's a short little person. Huh? And um, and she was there, kind of. She she was okay. She had some. She wasn't easy to work with, but she was basically okay. And uh, her husband came out and looked at it, and uh, Paul was with me when we did that one. So we got her approval and got the hell out of there and go made the game. Now, when you that one only sold a little over seven thousand units, did anybody say anything to you at that point? No, I mean they were happy at seven. You can see where there was promotion behind it. I never got it, 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 there was some promotion behind Dolly, but not a lot. But nothing like when we worked with the radio record company on Kiss uh, right. or the movie people at Columbia Films. When you get that true buy-in by the person, the subject, there's a much different feel, and the game sells much better. 
Now, what about the Rolling Stones? How hard was that to get that license? You know, again, mostly by phone. There was one or two meetings in New York, but never met the group. Never got it. Talked to the record label. They had no interest in doing anything. I don't remember the number. If you have it in front of you, I would imagine it's fairly modest. Yeah, fifty-seven hundred units, and that's because again, there was no support from the from the artist. I mean, if the if the subject doesn't get behind it and want to do something big, you don't get those blockbuster numbers. Now, was um, um, what was the payment like for the Rolling Stones? Did they want a lot? No, it was cash. I mean, nobody. I never did a lot. I mean, I don't think that any deal I ever did, ever, after the whole event, came in at over $100,000. Right. Huh. Now, now, have you, what was, um, you know, after Rolling Stones, it looked like the licensing really fell off at Bally. What happened? What year was that? 1980. I shifted over and took over, um, I started to do some of the video game stuff. I did Tron. Right. The video game. Mm-hmm. Um, because they, they, the guys that, we consolidated the two, and I was vice president of marketing for both pinball and video. And they, the video guys challenged me to come up with something that would help them. And that's when I went to Disney and did the, uh, uh, the Tron, they were doing the movie. Right, right. So I remember spending some time on the set there and, and the launch, the, the, uh, premiere of the, of the movie in New York. Uh, we were at Tavern on the Green. We had the units in there and got some press exposure um, and pitched that. Um, so I, I think my focus kind of started to shift to other things, uh, trying to take advantage of some of the video game. Right, because the pinball thing was probably the numbers, uh, you know, it wasn't just you know, you know, the numbers were fading in, in favor of uh, the video game era at that point, probably. Right, right. So It was going to video. So now, what? how long did you end up staying at Bally doing this stuff? I stayed at Bally, let's see, I, I, uh, in 84, they put me in corporate, and I worked with um, various subsidiaries. I worked with Sente, remember uh, Nolan Bushnell's second company. Mm-hmm. Um, after he did Atari, his second company was called Sente. And I worked with those guys a little bit, trying to get them some licenses. I kind of became the licensing guy for Bally Corporate. I worked with the amusement parks, um, trying to cross-promote with some licensing deals. Um, uh, and then he ended up in the video lottery portion of the business, and that's when I transitioned into into gaming, in essence. I did lottery for then on, and then ended up out here in 92 um, when Bally Gaming was spinning out, uh, well, when Bally was spinning out all its gaming properties and creating a publicly held gaming entity called Bally Gaming International Inc. Now, did you ever think of doing any licensing on slot machines? Yeah, sure. Uh, I did the very first ones. I did George Burns. I did uh, Win with the Stars. I had... Uh, George Burns, Ann Margaret, and uh, Wayne Newton, and did the. I did. It was a series, and each had their own machine, but you bought them in sets of three. And it, the the big show to launch everything, 
was about three weeks before George Burns fell in the shower, cracked his head, and eventually died. Wow. I think if George Burns had shown up at the show, the thing would have gone through the roof. The games were at the show. Um, Ann Margaret didn't show up, but uh, Wayne Newton did. and He was the C-level guy in that, that trilogy. Uh, George Burns, I thought, was the classic Vegas, you know, bomb vivant, and uh, and we lost him, so we didn't do it. But I started bringing Joe Kamenkow out to the gaming shows and trying to get some ideas out of him uh, when he was at uh, Sega Pinball. And it, I couldn't get him hired at Bally. They wouldn't pay. And he eventually got a job at IGT and then went on a huge tear and did every license on the face of the earth. Yeah, he was pretty successful at that, too. Huh? He was really successful at IGT with the licensing. Successful. Yeah. Yeah. He he, he pulled some pretty good ones. Yeah, he sure did. Yeah. Yeah. So, now, when Bally sold off the pinball division to Williams, you were still working for the main corporate office of Bally, right? I left corporate in... Uh... 87? Yeah, that was right around that time. Yeah. So now, were you... Went in the lottery business, worked with some different lottery companies as an offshoot of Bally, because Bally owned Scientific Games, which was the scratch-off ticket provider. And that put me into the lottery business, and the lottery business eventually put me in the casino business. So looking back on all this, what was the, was the initial, the, you know, the pinball years with the initial licensing, was that the most fun? Oh, awesome. Awesome. And and never never would have considered, gee, should I get paid more because of these? Yeah. Uh, where today, any deal like that I would have done, I would have capped it, and then everything above X, I, I'd take a piece. Right. I mean, I should have been, uh, if I wasn't so naive, I would have been filthy rich. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh well. Now, now, um... How much did you stay in the in the gambling aspect of of Bally's world? When at what point? Well, I mean, like you know, when you were trying to do the licensing with 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 Burns and that, and that, I came out here in '92. That was probably I left in '95, so it was '94. I I launched that. Did you ever do any more license? Now, well, I took I went over to Shufflemaster and took their Let It Ride game and created a, an after a secondary tournament event, live tournament event, off the table game, and just had huge success with that. <coughs> Let It Ride just went through the roof, and uh, so once again, I made somebody a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, you're pretty good at that, I see. I just got to figure out how to do that for me. <laughs> Well, it's cool. Is there any any stories I left out or anything I forgot to ask in regards to the, to the pinball licensing? God, I don't know. We covered a lot. Yeah, we sure do. It's some great. I mean, the whole thing. You know, I, I mean, I'm sure you've got a lot of great stories that you really don't want to repeat in regards to this stuff. There, there are a few. Yeah, I'd like to hear some of the Playboy Mansion stories. I'm, I'm sure, um, I'm sure there's a most of this there. I did with my sidekick, which was uh, Paul Ferris. Right, right. Paul, Paul was a terrific confidant on this, and when we would discuss these licenses, uh, and then, you know, I'd go root them out and bring them to him, and then 
he and I usually stay together during the approval process. So. Well, cool, Tom. I really do appreciate your time. Um, I, this is this was great. I mean, so you know, you started. I, I mean, if you look at Stern Pinball, every title they do is a licensed game. I mean, you started, a, you know, like a sub industry. Well, you know, and Joe Kimenkow was always great. I, I met Joey when he was like fourteen. Uh, I worked with his dad Arnold, who was at the uh, Empire Distributor in Boston, and. Um, when Joe did the 25th, was the 25th anniversary of The Who, based on the, the play, he sent me one of those units, the Rock Opera Tommy, when they did it based on the play that was in New York. Oh, right, 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 right. yeah, the Tommy game. That was in, uh, what, 1993? Early, mid-90s, something yeah, like that. Yeah, 1993, right. Yeah, right. And, and Joe called me because, uh, oh, he asked me some questions about who was who within that organization, and... Uh, uh, I gave him the contacts at Towser Music, which was the licensing arm for The Who, which is owned by Pete Townsend, and uh, helped him make some connections. But, you know, sometime later, then uh, uh, the unit showed up at my house in Vegas here. <laughs> That's great. Man, it's good to have friends. Yeah. 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 Do you have a large pinball collection? Uh, no, I've got... Uh, only two left now. I've got uh, Captain Fantastic and uh, that uh, Tommy unit. Now, did you, during the early licensing, did you ever get a game? Yeah. Yeah, but, I, I'd get them and, and they'd come in and go. I'd, uh, I, as I said, I had that $6 million man prototype. I had a ball bowler in the basement at one point. Um, and uh, then I, I, they gave me the Captain Fantastic um, did I have anything else? I, oh, I had some Pac-Man units that Midway gave me, and so uh, from time to time. But you move, and I've gotten rid of some stuff. I'd really like to thank Tom Neiman of Bally Licensing for joining us tonight. I uh, appreciate his time and some great stories, and I hope you all come back and listen to us again here on TopCast, the pinball radio talk show.